You're listening to Renewing Religion, a podcast about worship, social duties, and spirituality featuring an overview of Imam al-Ghazali's Ihya. This podcast is brought to you by Seekers Hub. This Ramadan, our goal is to raise $75,000 in monthly donations to build a global Islamic seminary so that dedicated students all over the world can complete their journeys and become Islamic scholars. You can help them by becoming a monthly donor at seekershub.org slash donate. So we continue just taking some points from uh, the chapters of Ahiyya al-Muddin, the revival of the Islamic disciplines or Islamic sciences. And uh, as you may already be aware, Imam al-Ghazali divided the book into four major sections. Um, so we're reading in this, the third section, which is called Rubra al-Muhlikat, which is talking about those things that are vices, uh, in the Arabic, it's called muhlikat, which means those things that can destroy you. Right? So not so much destroy in a physical sense, but destroy you in terms of your humanity. Because if you, if you are stripped of your humanity, then what's left? You just uh, you may be living and breathing and eating and doing everything else like a human being might do, but you're just down to your bare animalistic attributes. And so we don't want to be stripped of our humanity. And these muhlikat... Right, these things, if they are allowed to grow and fester and develop within one, these vices, then it will take away your humanity. You'll become something that, as the Quran talks about, certain types of people, right? People who have been endowed with certain faculties. Do they not have hearts by which they can understand with? Do they don't have ears by which they can listen with? And if they don't use those faculties, If they don't use those faculties, then they're like the an'am. They're like any other type of animal, beasts of burden, farm animals. No, they're actually worse because nothing more is expected from the animal except to do exactly what it's supposed to do by instinct. Whereas we have been endowed with these remarkable faculties, Right, of understanding, of insight, of nutq, of speaking, right, and, and sharing, disseminating that which we learn and spreading it to others. These are all very important, valuable, unique qualities to the human condition. However, they can become obscured, um, they can become lessened if we allow these vices to grow within us. And this was really the thesis of Imam al-Ghazali. He felt that during his time, that uh, people were concentrating on the exterior aspects of the deen to the detriment of the internal secrets of the deen. Right? That's why in the first set of ten chapters, the first 25% or the first quarter of the book, he dedicates it to talking about ibadat, talking about the ritual devotional acts, but he looks at them from what's called what he calls al-asrar, so I'll talk about asrar al-salah, asrar al-zakah, asrar al-hajj, the secrets of prayer, the secrets of zakat, the secrets of hajj. Why do we do these things and what are we supposed to be getting out of them? They're not just the physical um, exercises that they are, right? That's just the representation of it, but there's something much more meaningful about it. So in this third set of uh, 
third quarter of Ihya. The last quarter deals with virtues. So after you've done what's called a takhliya, which is to remove vice, then you move on to embodying the virtues. And so he'll talk about what are pretty much the cardinal opposites of all the things we're talking about here. So right now we're talking about the condemnation of love of money and um, miserliness, right? being stingy with whatever wealth that you may have. The opposite of that would be a sakha, which would be generous, to freely give, or al-ithar, right, which is to prefer others over yourself. These are the virtues that you want to embody within yourself. But first, it requires a recognition about um, the reality of why we love wealth in the way that we do and why we are so um, unwilling to part with it. And this is what he talks about in this chapter. So just some of the points. Uh, as I said, his, his manhajiyya, his methodology is to bring out verses in the beginning. He mentions this verse. يَا أَيُّهُ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا تُلْحِكُمْ أَمْوَالُكُمْ وَلَا أَوْلَادُكُمْ عَنْ ذِكْرِ اللَّهِ وَمَنْ يَفْعَلْ ذَلِكَ فَأُولَائِكَ هُمُ الْخَاسِرُونَ And another verse. إِنَّمَا أَمْوَالُكُمْ وَأَوْلَادُكُمْ فِتْنَةٌ All you who believe, uh, do not allow your wealth and your progeny, your children, to distract you from the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And whoever does so, then they will be amongst those who are in a state of loss or are the losers and another verse verily your wealth and your progeny are a source of fitna right people will read these verses and at first glance they will say well then that means wealth and children are wrong because if they're going to be fitna and they're going to be something that distracts me from the remembrance of Allah, then why should I have them to begin with? Then perhaps I should remain celibate and remain single. And perhaps I should retreat to an area where I am I'm not in need of wealth. I can live out in the forest and just pick from the acorns and live like the squirrels. But that's not what the deen is telling us, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in another verse, Al-Qur'an yufassiru ba'duhu ba'da, as they say. The Qur'an, it explains some part of it with another part of it. And we will test you, right, with good and evil as a source of tribulation. So the source of tribulation need not be evil in of itself. The source of tribulation need not be evil in of itself. How else can we explain when the Prophet ﷺ says to Mu'ad ibn, ibn Jabal, when he led the prayer and he took too long, he said, Are you trying to be a source of fitna? So what should we understand from that? That a longer recitation of Qur'an is wrong? It's not praiseworthy? No, it is praiseworthy, obviously. But take it in its proper context, right? Because if you do it out of its context, you do it within a fard, obligatory prayer, and then there are people praying behind you who are unable to stand so long, then you are causing a tribulation for them that is unnecessary because it's not necessary for you to take so long in an obligatory prayer where the imam you want to pray for longer by yourself you're free to do so so it's still khair in of itself that thing but when it's put in a particular context then it can be a source of tribulation 
So uh, wealth in of itself is not wrong. Why? This is how the dunya works, right? Uh, if we are instructed, if we are obligated, right, to spend upon those whom we are responsible for, right, and ourselves, that means there has to be some acquisition of wealth. So acquiring wealth in of itself is not wrong, per se. What's wrong, then, is for it to become all-consuming, so that's all there is for you, and it distracts you from things that are more important, right? There are people, there are men, and also first to women, whose trading, whose commercial activities, and their buying and selling does not distract them from the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and from establishing the prayer. It didn't say they don't trade, they don't engage in commercial transactions, or they don't have children, but rather not for it to be a source of distraction from those things that are also quite important. And the reason that they become distracting then, right, because Allahu, uh, as I think we said yesterday, right, um, and tulha bishay means it's uh, a busyness of the heart, not of the limbs. It's a busyness of the heart, first and foremost, rather than a busyness of the limbs. So that means it's occupying most of your thoughts. It, it, it becomes a source of your aspirations. It's the thing that you think about. Everybody, before they go to sleep at night, they lie in bed and they think about something. Right? Everybody does that. What is it that you lie in bed thinking about before you go to sleep? Do you think about, um, you know, how much money I have in the bank and how much more do I need to have? Or do you think about, oh, the children, what do I need to do to, you know, prepare them for tomorrow? What do I need to do when I wake up in the morning? Or do you think about deeper, more ponderous questions about you and your relationship with Allah and so forth? People think about many, many things, Right? Where you're at at that particular point, these are the things that are working, right, in, in your sort of subconscious, as we, as we talked about yesterday. So, uh, if you are preoccupied with those things that are supposed to be merely a means and they're not an ends, like wealth, it's only supposed to be a means, but we become so attached to it because we treat them like objectives in of themselves. We treat them like they're ends and they're just means. And so, that's why he calls it them hubbil mal. He didn't say them mil mal. He didn't say condemnation of money and wealth. He said condemnation of love of money. So here we're talking about aspects of the heart. All of these vices, primarily, we're talking about how do you feel about them? How do you interact with them? Where is it in your heart? And that's why the popular saying of a zuhad, they would say, اجعل الدنيا في يدك ولا في قلبك. Put the dunya in your hand not in your heart, right? You have sultan over the dunya, you lead the dunya and you do with it as you wish, don't let it lead you around, right? You have control over that which you acquire in terms of material wealth, not that that has control over you. So, um, as a result then, the, the condemnation uh, and finding the love of the money is blameworthy. And that's why one of the principal Imam al-Ghazali talks about this in the chapter about the zakat. One of the principal objectives of zakat 
or sadaqat, or, or giving your money, money away for charity, is so that you can work on this removal of the love of it. And the Qur'an makes that one of the criteria of true righteousness. You do not treat true birr, right? True piety with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala until you spend of that which you love. You have to give up something that you love, right? And in the hadith, as-sadaqatu burhan. The sadaqah is a burhan. The sadaqah is a proof. Charity is a proof. What is it a proof of? It's a proof that you're being sadiq, you're being truthful and honest when you say, La ilaha illallah Muhammadun Rasulullah. It's a proof that when you say, I love Allah and I love His Prophet, well, prove it. Are you willing to give up something that you love for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Because if you're not willing to give anything up, then we'd have to say that you're a mudda'i. You're just a claimant, someone who makes a claim. But when you're put to the test, are you going to uh, are you going to give freely, or are you going to hold on to it? That means your love is not secure. Your love is, is not that is not that true. It's not honest. So uh, that means then the zakat and the sadaqat go back to our own benefit. Yes, there is a benefit for al-qabid. There's a benefit for the one who's receiving it, and we all know that. But the greater benefit is for the one who's giving it, because it allows them then to purify themselves from this attachment to those things that they possess, right? And it's by no mistake that we're all going to die and all the things that we're going to possess will be meaningless and worthless. No matter how many zeros you have at the end of your bank account, they mean nothing once you're in the grave. Um, and so then our sense of aspiration and holding on to something should be then with that which is eternal and forever. Not the thing that is diminishing and the thing that is temporal and ephemeral and doesn't last. So our ilm and our amal, these are the things that we bring to the akhirah. Our knowledge of Allah, of God, is what we bring to the akhirah. And our amal, what did we actually do during our life? How were we with people? How did we interact? Were we a source of good and a source of mercy? Or were we the opposite of that? These are the things that we call then amal al-akhirah. Even though you're doing them in the dunya, they directly relate to the next life, to the akhirah. And so that's why they become important. But in order for you to be facilitated to do those things, removing these vices, these obstacles, are essential. They are essential. It's not like an extracurricular activity uh, that one has a choice of doing, uh, partaking or not partaking in. Imam Hassan al-Shadri, he said that, Whoever doesn't take partake in this science of ours, this discipline, teskiya, suluk, right, purifying one's heart, then if they die in that state, it's like they died and they are insistent upon al-masiyah. And they're insistent upon being disobedient to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So everyone should have some type of program, an active one, where they're thinking about how do I need, how do I remove my shortcomings? And the first step to removing shortcomings is identifying them to begin with, right? Or at least acknowledging them, right? If you say, you know, I'm good, I don't have any of that stuff that he's talking about. It's all good for me, and uh, you know, I love Allah, I love His Prophet, Allah Ghafur Rahim. Then uh, you're mudai, you're kathab. Because if you think that about yourself, you're certainly not that. Because people who are really like that, who really have embodied these aspects, they don't think that. 
They always think that they're muqassir. They always think that they're not doing enough, that they're negligent, that they're remiss. There's always something more that they, be can, they can be doing. But if you feel like you're doing everything that you can, and that's perfect, and Allah should be satisfied with that, then there's a problem here. You have to look deeper within yourself um, and realize that not admitting your shortcomings is one of the worst shortcomings. And the ulama, they have a word for that. They call al-ujb or rida an nafs which is to be pleased with, one your, your, with oneself. And they call that al-da'al-udal, the incurable spiritual disease. Because if you are pleased with yourself and you think that you don't have anywhere else to go or to improve, then why would you make any effort to improve? And then you'll be stuck in the same place, spiritually that is, where you're at. But the reality of it is that you're not going to be stuck there. You're going to be getting worse. Imam Ali radiallahu anhu said, you can't, you don't, there's no such thing as staying still, right? This qalb is mutaqallib. The heart means mutaqallib, means it's oscillating, means it's not steady. So it's either going up or it's going down. So if you think that you're going, if you're staying still, you're actually decreasing. You're not increasing. You have to feel that you're on a path of tarqiyah. You're on a path of increase to actually um, increase. So here he describes later in the chapter about two types of people. Those people who actually have physical wealth and then those who don't, right? Uh, both can be afflicted by love of money. You may say, well, how is the one who doesn't have any, how can they be afflicted by that? They don't have it to begin with. But we said it's not about the physical acquisition of it, that you actually have it, but rather, are you looking for it? Are you seeking it, right? And the virtue that they talk about that signifies that you're not seeking it and that you are content with the circumstances that have come your way, that's called qana'a. Right? That's called being content with what Allah has decreed for you. If you compare that to what we just said earlier, just a few minutes ago, which means you're not content with yourself. So we're asked to be content with certain things, and we're asked not to be content with certain things. What are we asked to be content with? Your circumstances. In other words, those things that are pretty much outside of your control how tall you are, what color skin you have, who your parents are, um, how much money you have in the bank account. Even those things, those are, these are from the arzaq, right? These are things that have been decreed that Allah gives to you. And Allah says that, Some people we have preferred in the rizq. Some people have given more than others. And if Allah SWT is the one who is decreeing this and He's the one who is deciding, then there's another virtue that you need to have in order to get at this thing called qana'a, which is contentment with your circumstances. That's called tafweed. In other words, you place complete faith and agency in whatever Allah decides for you. So if He decides for me relative poverty, and that's His decision, and that's what He wants for me, then who am I to object? Yes, it's difficult. It's not easy. I can't buy the nice things that other people may be able to buy. But if that's what Allah wants for me, then who am I to object to that? Because ultimately, I believe whatever He decides for me is what's 
going to be right for me. Allah is going to do right by me. Conversely, if one has been given wealth, right, um, then the virtue that should be associated with that, what they call today, disposable income, right? Disposable income means you have more money than your needs. So if you have that, and I would venture to say most, if not many, people living in countries like Canada or the United States or uh, more of these prosperous Western countries, most people have some amount of disposable income. In other words, they cover their needs and then some. So they have something, you know, they can do with it. So what then is the virtue that becomes associated with someone in that position? Then we would say, Right? Sakha means freely giving and being generous with it and preferring others over yourself. Those are the attributes associated with someone who has excess. Now, if someone who doesn't have that much has those things, right, has ithar and sakha, but yet they don't have that much to begin with, but they're willing to part with it so easily, right, then this is a very, very high maqam, right, very high. The Qur'an describes people like this, The ones who prefer others over themselves, even if they have difficult situation. It's said that the sabab in nuzul or, or the reason uh, that this verse was revealed was in response to a particular situation. In other words, it was revealed at this particular time. It was always going to be revealed, but at this particular time, because there was um, a person from the Ansar, one of the things that the Prophet ﷺ did, the first things when he reached Al-Medina, Akha bayna al-Ansar wal-Muhajireen, which means he designated uh, a brotherhood relationship between the, the ones who emigrated, the, the Meccans, and the ones who were emigrated to the Medinians. And he said that he paired people up. So he would say, this is like your brother, you need to have bonds of brotherhood and take care of each other. He wanted to build a society that was built upon solid foundation. And so one of the uh, Ansar who was paired up with one of the Muhajireen, he's bringing him over to have supper and his wife tells him, we don't have anything, we have enough for like one person. We don't have enough. He said, then do the following. Uh, it's in the evening, don't turn on the siraj, don't put the, the lamp on and put bowls in front of you and me and leave them empty and put a bowl in front of our guest coming from Mecca and put the food in his bowl and then we'll pretend to eat while he's eating. So he doesn't think that we just fed him and we're not feeding ourselves. Right? That's preferring you know, your brother over yourself. And that's a, a, it's a rare, rare, rare attribute to have, especially if if you have, you're not in a position, right? Because people say to themselves, well, you know, I'm just getting by here. I can't really, you know, part with anything right now, but maybe sometime in the future, you know, things are a bit easier for me and so forth. Uh, but at the very minimum then, for someone in that position, they should have qana'ah. Don't look to other people. Do not have tamanni 
don't have wishful thinking. I wish I had this and I wish I had that. Look at those people. They have these things. They have these nice things. I wish I had that. Because the nicest thing that you can possess that's better than all of that is to be content with your circumstances. Right? This is a ghina. La yanfa. This is a, a treasury. It's a wealth that never runs out. Because people would be astonished to know that most people or many people of means, they actually feel like they don't have enough. And they, they need to have more. Because that's the nature of the dunya. We've covered in the last chapter, the mid-dunya, right? The, the condemnation of the dunya is that you will never be satiated by it. No matter how much you get of it, you're always going to want more. Right? It's, it's like someone who has thirst and they drink and they drink and they drink and they drink and, and they never get satiated. They never, their, their thirst is never quenched. That's how the dunya is. And so knowing that, then we have to seek you know, to be satiated, to be content by a different means, not by partaking in the dunya, right? If something is a poison, you don't fix yourself by eating more of the poison. You only become more poisoned and more sick. But you fix yourself by taking the dawa, by the remedy, right? And Imam Ghazali describes the remedies. And he says it's mamzuj bain al-ilmi wal-amal. It's a combination of knowledge and a combination of deeds, right? So the knowledge that that being content with your circumstances is true wealth, right? To, in your heart, to feel you're not in need of anyone except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. أَنْتَ الْغَنِي Because the faqir, the meaning of faqir means the one who is in need. And if you only have need of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then faqr here becomes ghina, becomes the opposite. Because if you're only in need of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then you don't need anyone else. That means you're mustaghni an kulli ma Allah. You are not in need of anyone besides Allah. Such a person that we would describe them as a wealthy person. Amma al-ghani, the one who is self-described as wealthy because of material things, but they feel like they need and they need and they need, فَهَذَا هُوَ الْفَقْرِ That's the true poverty, because they're never satiated. They want to have more, and they want to have more, and they want to have more, and so forth. So we need to reorient our relationship with um, the things that we acquire. Uh, we need to learn to be satisfied with kind of the little small blessings in life, right? We need to actually fight the tide and, and fight the culture that's all around us that tells us uh, your worth as a person is defined by that which you accumulate and own. The type of car that you drive, the, the neighborhood that you live in, type of clothes that you wear, right? And in reality, none of those things define who you are. We have certain ritual acts and devotions in the deen that remind us of this. Why is it that when we go to Hajj, we all dress the same? And we all wear, wear the very same kind of very simple rida uh, and uh, izar. Uh, Right, just an upper garment and a lower garment for the men. Just to remind us that this is how we're going to end up. That the prince and the paupers are the same. Everyone is going to go into the same grave that's you know, six feet deep by two feet wide. Everyone. There's no difference. Right? You can make yourself a very nice fancy coffin and have all the trappings and so forth. And maybe be put in one of fancy mausoleums somewhere, but... At the end, if you open that coffin up and you look inside, you can't tell the millionaire from the person who lived in a stairwell 
somewhere. They look exactly the same. Uh, so having this kind of vision, this basira, this insight, to see the things as they really are, and not to be deluded by the trappings of the dunya and the trappings of wealth and the trappings of money. Right? And there have been several studies that have been done. People, after they reach a certain threshold of kind of a minimum amount of income or wealth where their needs are being taken care of, there is not a big difference in what they call the happiness index. There's not a big difference. In fact, people who are kind of just right above their needs and a little bit more than that generally are more happy than those who have extreme wealth. Because extreme wealth in and of itself is a fitna, it's a tribulation, it's a trial, right? When you are so separated from the rest of society, right, and you be, you, society defines you then about what you own and the wealth that you have, right? Such people then become completely consumed and focused on that part of who they are because that's all that they know. Everyone else defines them by their wealth. And soon that becomes not enough for them. So like in our country, they want to become president of the United States, the U.S., that is, right? Because they've done everything else. They have all the wealth that they want. What else can there be after that? So, um, you know, I think what we, we keep in mind from this chapter is that whatever we're given, it's from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if Allah wants us to redistribute that, right? Because when he asks us to give sadaqat or zakat, really it's a redistribution. The bank account is his. You're just the treasurer who signs the check. If he makes a request, pay this to this and pay this to that, you say, you know, I hear and I obey because it's not mine to begin with. Allahu A'lam. So uh, let's go to the chapter after that, 28, which he calls Dhamm al Jah wa He says, أَعْلَمْ أَنَّ الْجَاهَ مَحْبُوبُ الْقُلُوبِ فَلَا يَسْمَحُ بِتَرْكِهِ إِلَّا السِّدِّقُونَ وَلِذَلِكَ قِيلَ آخر ما يخرج من رؤوس السديقين حب الرياسة ونبين الغرض من ذلك بفصول So, جاه and رياء جاه means status and prestige, reputation, how people view you. And he said, this is one of the most beloved things to people, how you are viewed by others. And very, very few people are going to let go of that, you know, that inclination to, to think about how people view them, except he calls a siddiqun. And a siddiq is, is the highest uh, spiritual aspiration one can, one can aspire to. It's the maqam of Abu Bakr siddiq radiallahu anhu. So, uh, for non-prophets, people who are not prophets and messengers, obviously this is the highest thing that they can aspire to. And he said that's why they say the last thing to exit from the heart of the Siddiq, of the truly penitent, pious uh, Siddiq, is love of leadership, to be in charge. Why? Because when you're in charge, when you're a leader, people are looking at you for influence, for, for, for inspiration, and you are generally regarded as someone who's important, right? Because people divide societies into leaders and into followers. So if you're a leader, right, you're metbu'ah, people are following you, that's better than being tabah, 
when you are following others. And there's a certain appeal to that, right? That's beloved to, to many people. And that's blameworthy. So he says, He said, no, that prestige and status, it is the spread of fame. Right? And it's, subhanAllah, Ghazali wrote this a thousand years ago, but it feels like he's talking about today. Because now we have this very new, unique phenomenon where people are famous for being famous. They haven't really done anything. At least in the past, people were, their, their fame spread because they actually, I don't know, contributed something. They did something, right, that was noteworthy. But now we have people who just... What did they do exactly? Why is that person famous? Well, because they're famous. Everybody knows them, right? So celebrity then becomes uh, a goal and objective in of itself. And it's actually more um, subversive and encompassing than we realize. Because even if you look to the new business models, right, um, the most valuable corporations in the world, their business model is predicated not on very high profit margins, but on huge volume. And that's a new phenomenon, right? Amazon, for example. How is it that they can sell at cheaper prices than most everybody else and still make money? And the reason for that is because they have a huge volume. So they're looking at, overall, more people know about them, right? The greater number. Why is it that Facebook is such a valuable company, or even Apple? It's all based upon value, right? You're looking at capturing what they say, the vast majority of the market share. And then everyone is trying to do that. Everyone is trying to get that new nifty idea that no one thought of before, that all of a sudden will go viral. Right? And even people put videos on YouTube. The whole idea, well, I wanted this thing to go viral. What does that mean, go viral? Everybody gets to know about it. You get 100,000 or a million downloads or whatever the number is for viral. Then people know you. right? And then that becomes an objective of itself for people to know you. So people will do all sorts of outlandish things, make funny cat videos and whatever else that people do and, you know, take pictures of people in, in inopportune times and videos and in, in, in kind of uh, uh, moments that they're compromised, all for fame, all so that this can spread and then they get to be known and they reach the objective of being known, just for being known. So Imam al-Ghazali includes this as one of the cardinal vices, right? The idea that you want to be popular, that you want to be known. And he said, this is blameworthy, right? except for that which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He has made them known for the dissemination of His deen. That's different, right? But it says here, مَنْ شَحَرَهُ اللَّهِ لَا مَنْ شَحَرَ نَفْسَهُ Whoever Allah has done that for them. Not that you make that a goal in of itself. So even people who are involved in the dissemination of the deen, they should never have the type of objective where I, I me, myself, as a person, want to be known. But rather the objective is we want this deen 
this beautiful deen, this beautiful set of principles and, and akhlaq and vision of, of reality in the world as it is, we want that to spread to every household because we believe that's the best thing for any particular human being on the face of the planet. We want that. But not so that I can become known or fulan can become known or a certain person be, can become known. Right? And the, our teachers, they used to say, al-dhuhur yaksir al-dhuhur. Zuhur manifesting being known in front of people breaks backs. Because once you're out in a public arena, right, once you're there, then you also become a target. You become an object. Because it's also very satisfying for people who are envious to knock you down. So the mistakes that you make will be more magnified because everybody's watching them while you're doing them. Whereas a setr, right, setr means to be concealed. Right? They call it as-satrul jameel, beautiful concealment. Right? No, one, no one would put those two words together nowadays unless it's something that they're not proud of. But the reality is all of us have things we're not proud of. All of us have things about us that we would not want other people to know, that we would not want to be divulged and people to see. I don't want anyone seeing what I'm thinking about inside my head all the time because of other things I'm not proud of. So why would I want that to be public? And so any good opinion that people may have of you in order to overcome this love of prestige, don't attribute it to anything that you did in particular, but rather to what Allah has concealed of your shortcomings from others. Allah has concealed shortcomings. He's shown people the good side of you, and He chose to conceal the bad side of you, and so the people don't have a good opinion of you. So even when people praise you, Right, either to your face or you read about it or something like that or you hear about it, say, Alhamdulillah, Satullahi Jameel. Say, praise to Allah that He has concealed my shortcomings and He has put into the heart of these people what good, that if I do have any good, it didn't come from me anyway. It came from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, you know, really at the, at the core of it, to overcome this love of prestige and love of status is no for one, that it doesn't come from you, and that any good that you have came from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You didn't do it, but Allah facilitated it for you. And just, you know, take a cataloging of people around you and things that you see. How many are the people who, you know, who, who strive so, you know, struggle with certain things and try to do them, and you know that they have it within them, but somehow things don't materialize, and yet other people come so easy. Right? Other people just, just like that. They do something outlandish, they become very famous, and people throw money at them and give them money to attend their parties, and you think they have the life. And it just came like that. Don't judge the book by its cover. Don't judge by the way it looks. If Allah wants that facilitated for you, He's going to facilitate it. If He does not want that facilitated, then you're going to remain right, in your beautiful concealment. And... The ulama of Tazkiyah and Suluk, they said that uh, you need to have a period of khumul, right? If you're going to be the type of person where people are going to learn about the deen via you, you become an exemplar, you become a Muhammadan heir, you know, a warith in Nabi Sallallahu um, and then you may become known as a result, because how else are people going to, to know about it? Then uh, you need to go through a period of training, where you are actively seeking the opposite. You are seeking concealment. 
or you're seeking obscurity, right? Ibn Atta al-Sakandari said that that thing which is not buried in the ground of obscurity will not later bear fruit because it's like a seed, right? The seed, as you look at it, doesn't look like anything. But in order for that seed to turn into something, right, to turn into later into a, a banana tree or a mango or an avocado, whatever it might be, you got to put it in the ground, you have to conceal it completely. It's not there. You don't even know it's there. But it goes through a period of irrigation, right? Training, mu'alaja, right? The, the farmer is taking care of it and he's, you know, checking it every day and, you know, watering it when it needs to be watered and so forth and putting fertilizer until after he bears the, the fruit of his labor when the thing actually comes up and it sprouts and it bears fruit. And now you see for what it is, but you don't know how that thing started. You don't know the beginning. You don't know where it came from, right? But something that just sprouts out like that out of nowhere, what do we call that? So I'll say in one voice, what do we call that? Weeds, right? Weed, you don't have to do anything to it. You don't have to put seeds or anything. It just sprouts out. And they're unseemly. They're ugly. They don't belong there. They just sprout out of nowhere. Yes, there's dhuhur. There's manifestation, and you can see it. And maybe from far away, it looks like a plant or something, or a tree. But once you get close and you look at it, it's a, it's a weed. And the thing about weeds is, if you grab it, do you have to pull that heart to take it out? No, you don't. It comes right out. Because it didn't have a sense. It didn't have a foundation. But go try pull out the banana tree or the mango tree. Right? You can't. It's impossible. It's, it has roots. It's spread. It's thabit. Right? right? And, it's, and then its fruits bear in the heavens and in the sky. So we want to be like the, the fruit trees. We want to cultivate ourselves. Right? Cultivate our inner life. Cultivate our character. Build ourselves. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then decides that after I've, we've done this period of cultivation that he wants this to bear fruit and others may benefit, that's up to him. He decides that. But we should always remember that our asl, our foundation, our original state, that we were just a seed in the ground, that Allah decided for it to bear fruit or not. So I think we've uh, coming up upon Maghrib. I will uh, stop here, inshallah. And I thank all of you for listening. I don't think I have another session except for after Maghrib briefly for the fundraiser, but uh, it was a pleasure to come back to the hub even for a short two days. Alhamdulillah, and I thank everybody, uh, Sheikh Farah, Sidi Amr, and the rest of the team, or Muammar, who facilitated this. Um, and I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept our fasting in these few remaining days. It's amazing that here we are, and the month is virtually over, and it feels like it just started. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to not deprive us from another Ramadan, that he gives us the blessing of this Ramadan, that he uh, allows us to grow in the coming year until we reach the Ramadan of next year, and then we even get more out of it, inshallah. Alhamdulillah. Thank you for listening to this Seekers Hub podcast. To listen to the rest of our shows, please visit seekershub.fm. You can also subscribe to our weekly email newsletter called Compass, where we'll send the best of Seekers Hub's content straight to your inbox every single week. To get on the list, visit seekershub.org slash compass.